0: November 23, 2023. 19 minutes read. Money Stuff Goldman Keeps Getting More Boring by Matt Levine. Money Stuff at Business Insider Bethany McLean writes about an unusual problem that afflicts her and me and a handful of other journalists, which is D. Goldman at Business Insider. Bethany McLean writes about an unusual problem that afflicts her and me and a handful of other journalists, which is Disclosure that we used to work at Goldman Sachs Group, Inc. And now we write about finance, and we try to be fair and thoughtful, but we still have some rooting interest in Goldman's mystique. Like, one, if Goldman does awesome, brilliant things, then we look smarter and more awesome by virtue of our association with Goldman. Two, if Goldman does evil, clever things, then that's pretty good too. Like, one, everyone we meet is like, "Oh, you must be evil and clever, and I will definitely take that. One. Also, though, as a journalist, I get a certain advantage from that. Everything I write about Goldman is extra interesting if I am, or might be, or could be interpreted as being, exposing Goldman's evil secrets. I wrote earlier this year about Goldman getting in trouble with regulators for cleverly hosing some customers on some swaps trades. Embarrassing for Goldman, but fun for me. I do not want to be too generous about Goldman's cleverness, I wrote, or too ungenerous about its sharp elbows, but just... If you think that you're pulling a fast one on Goldman Sachs, you might be right, but maybe double-check to be sure. That is a humble brag, I think, or an evil but clever brag. Goldman's cleverness and its sharp elbows reflect well on its alumni. 3. If Goldman does dumb tawdry things, that doesn't help us at all. McLean writes, As the years passed, my short stint at Goldman continued to give me a sneaky sense of pride. I say sneaky— because after the global financial crisis of 2008, criticism of the bank, some of it even written by me, mounted, dramatically, Culminating in Matt Tybee's famous piece, likening the firm to a vampire squid. But here's the thing. The criticism always contained a trace of awe. There was a mystique to Goldman. It was cool and competent, even when it lost hundreds of millions on a trading bet gone awry, or intentionally screwed its own clients. Well, that had a certain swagger to it. And now she is worried that Goldman has lost that mystique and swagger. Now it is run by a former DJ whose partners and predecessor are constantly sniping at him. And its big strategic move in recent years has been to expand into consumer banking, which is just less cool than high stakes mergers and billion dollar trading. Back in 2021, I wrote sort of wishfully about how, Sure, sure, it looked like they were just opening credit cards and savings accounts for retail customers. But maybe it was all an elaborate misdirection. You could have two basic views of Goldman Sachs Group Inc.'s Marcus consumer banking product. One is that it represents Goldman's move into boring consumer banking. The other is that it is a trick, and Goldman is going to lure consumers and then use their money to do horrifying structured products. Disclosure I used to work at Goldman, structuring horrifying products. I kid, they were fine, finish, And part of me is always rooting for the trick answer. It would give me immense pleasure to report to you that Goldman was selling synthetic tranches of its Apple-branded credit card debt to unsuspecting German regional banks and then also betting against those tranches, etc. 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 You know all the tricks by now, but no, no trick. They were just doing consumer banking. Also, it didn't work. Goldman lost money and has now retreated from that strategy. McLean. Only after Goldman's fledgling retail business had lost $3.8 billion, did Chief Executive Officer and ex-DJ David Solomon finally agree to shut it down. The episode was a shocking failure on the part of a firm whose people pride themselves, on being the smartest, and whose core business is telling other businesses how to be smart. People always said, you guys are greedy, a former partner told me, but they never thought we were incompetent. Anyway, McLean's piece is much broader. It is about the decline in Goldman's swagger and the causes for it. We have talked around here about how Goldman was, not all that long ago, a private partnership, one whose managing partner was more of a first among equals than a real chief executive officer. Even after Goldman did its initial public offering in 1999, it maintained a partner title. Its CEOs all grew up in the partnership and they still treated their partners like partners. David Solomon, the first Goldman CEO who was not a pre-IPO partner, and the first Goldman CEO who was also a DJ, has changed that. McLean. Solomon, for his part, says he was told in no uncertain terms that broad change was needed. I had a board who gave me a very, very clear message that they wanted the firm to operate more like a public company, with a mandate to perform for shareholders, he says. That required transforming the culture of Goldman, in ways that felt to some partners like Solomon was adding insult on top of the injury to their paychecks. David has really tried to corporatize the firm, says one partner. It's a big firm now, he feels, and it needs to have more of a corporate structure and less of a partnership structure. The old Goldman had a handful of businesses, fiefdoms really, that invested the firm's own money in everything from real estate to tie Bart but that often placed Goldman at odds with the interests of those whose assets it managed. When the firm found a good investment, did it seize the opportunity for itself or give it to its clients? What's more, the amount of capital the Federal Reserve began to require Goldman to hold to offset any losses in its deals made the returns negligible, and shareholders didn't like the unpredictability of the earnings. So Solomon sold off the firm's own investments some $60 billion in total, and focused on managing money on behalf of outside investors, from high-net-worth individuals to pension funds. The move sparked a lot of internal disruption and dissent. Not many would have had the guts to do it, says Horwitz, Blankfine's former chief of staff, because senior people, they liked their businesses and they had great track records. Another former senior executive recalled that Blankfine recognized the need for Solomon's move. He's probably doing the right thing, Blankfine told the executive at the time, but it's not the stuff I could have done. Blankfine, the executive adds, was too culturally embedded in the place to kill the fiefdoms that his friends had spent their careers building. If you are a Goldman shareholder or board member, you might worry about a CEO who is too culturally embedded in the place. He might prioritize the culture or his buddies' careers over shareholder returns. On the other hand, if you're a Goldman partner who has been there for 20 years, you might be offended by the idea of a CEO who is not too culturally embedded. If you like the culture, there's no such thing as too culturally embedded. The other thing to notice in that block quote is what Solomon is trying to do. Get rid of Goldman's own investments and reshape Goldman as basically an alternative asset manager. Some of that is obviously driven by post-crisis regulation. You're not supposed to do tons of prop investing anymore. But some of it is also driven by the cultural shift in Wall Street more broadly. It used to be that the best thing to do was work at an investment bank, and Goldman was the best investment bank. But now the best thing to do is to work at a private equity firm, though the big private equity firms have diversified far enough that they are now more accurately called asset managers or investment firms. McLean, in 2013, a few years after. Goldman became a traditional bank instead of an investment house. I found myself at a reunion for former analysts, standing with two men who had been in my class. One worked at KKR, the other worked at Goldman. Where would you rather be now? The KKR guy asked with a laugh. At a heavily regulated bank like Goldman? Or at a private equity firm where you can do anything you'd like and make multiples more money? The answer is obviously KKR. And so Solomon's move, besides the consumer banking, oops, Is to make Goldman more like KKR, to focus on asset management. On the other hand, it's not obvious that that works. The strategic shift, necessary though it was, came at an unnecessarily steep price. During Solomon's tenure, more than 200 partners, including over 60 from asset management, have left Goldman. A significant talent drain at a time when it's trying to compete with private equity firms that have a big head start in building relationships with large institutional investors. Goldman's asset management clients, a former partner told Insider, are frustrated with having the churn. I've heard rumblings that the turmoil isn't over. And these days, rumblings seem to have an uncomfortable way of becoming fact. Earlier this year, Goldman boosted the share of profits that investment teams can pocket for themselves, more closely aligning their compensation with that of the big private equity firms it's a tacit admission that Goldman cannot afford to keep losing so much talent in such a critical part of its business. It is just possible that it is easier, in 2023, for a big private equity firm to compete with the universal banks than it is for the universal banks to compete with the private equity firms. 1. The private equity firms have financial and reputational momentum so they can poach talent from the banks more easily than the reverse. 2 the regulation of the banks is much stricter than the regulation of the private equity firms, even in not really banking. G-businesses where they compete. 3. If you are a private equity firm, you can mainly focus on questions like, what can we do that will make us the most money? While the big banks have lots of risky and or unprofitable legacy client service businesses. Plus, sometimes they expand into consumer banking. Also though the big private equity firms just have more of a partnership culture. Just in the simple literal sense that the big private equity firms typically have a complex corporate structure in which they manage funds for clients and they charge fees for that management. And a set portion of the fees goes to a partnership entity where they are shared by employees rather than the shareholders. They have retained their pre-IPO practices of making a lot of money, divvying it up among themselves, and then letting the shareholders have what's left. I suppose Goldman's current approach is nicer for the shareholders, but you can see why Goldman's partners prefer the old one. Is jujitsu securities fraud? Oh, you know, one. Every bad thing that happens to a public company is also securities fraud. Two, getting beaten up is bad. Three, Mark Zuckerberg. Getting beat up is probably bad for Meta Platforms Inc. If Mr. Zuckerberg were to become unavailable for any reason, says Meta, in its securities filings, there could be a material adverse impact on our operations. For instance, if he got beat up, real bad. 4. Therefore, Mark Zuckerberg getting beaten up is securities fraud, and since Zuckerberg enjoys Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which significantly elevates his risk of getting beaten up, 2. There are arguable securities disclosure concerns. He recently tore a ligament in training and got surgery for it, and Bloomberg's Alexandra Barinka wrote last Friday. There is a serious consideration here about whether Meta Platforms Inc.'s co-founder, CEO and controlling shareholder, has a duty to disclose his MMA, mixed martial arts activities, to investors, particularly if formal conti. Sertis are in his future. What if it's worse next time? Zuckerberg posted about his surgery on Instagram, and there was no filing or company statement. It's a question of materiality, said Brian Westhoff, an attorney at Polsinelli PC. Is it material to a reasonable investor to know what the executives are doing? Is there danger and uniqueness to it? MMA is something that most of us don't do. It's not that unreasonable to expect Zuckerberg will get injured again one day. About three in five MMA fights had at least one injury, according to an article published in the Orthopaedic Journal of Sports Medicine that reviewed 503 amateur and professional contests in 2018 and 2019. Zuckerberg's injury was just during training. He tore a ligament in his knee, a joint that one could argue isn't necessary to run a social media company, especially if he's spending time in his virtual reality metaverse. But what about his brain? Head injuries appear to be higher risk if he doesn't win his fights. Of losers' injuries in the journal's review, 17% were concussions. Look, nobody is more into everything as securities fraud than me, but I can't really imagine Meta getting sued for this. If Zuckerberg gets a concussion, everyone takes lots of risks in life. Sometimes accidents happen to CEOs, and those accidents probably aren't actually fraud. Not legal advice. Still, why hasn't Meta added a risk factor for this? Not because it is legally required, I mean, but just because it would be fun for the lawyers. Add a sentence to the risk factors like, our CEO likes to go to gyms to get punched in the face, and if he gets punched really hard in the wrong part of his face, then we may be unable to execute on our product roadmap. Surely writing that sentence is more fun for Meta's lawyers than whatever else they've got going on in their day, even if it is technically less important. The corollary to everything is securities fraud is that everything is also insider trading. And there are three obvious applications here. What if you show up at a Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournament to find that you are fighting Mark Zuckerberg? If you knock him out, can you run to your Robin Hood account and short MetaStock before the ambulance gets there? Can you short the stock before the match if you just know that you're huge and will knock him out? Do you then fight dirty? Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments now have a unique ability to create material non-public information about MetaStock. What if someone uses it? Mortgage mark to market. At the Wall Street Journal, James McIntosh has a fun column about the fact that a lot of US homeowners are sitting on big mark-to-market gains on their home mortgages. If you borrowed five hundred thousand dollars to buy a house at three percent interest for thirty years, and then mortgage rates went up to eight percent, that mortgage is now arguably worth just two hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars. Four, your debt went from five hundred thousand dollars to two hundred eighty-seven thousand dollars, so your net worth increased by two hundred twenty-three thousand dollars. Macintosh writes. Apply the logic used in the market, and there's been a transfer of well over $1 trillion in wealth from banks and bondholders to borrowers as rates have soared, a gain in wealth widely ignored by the beneficiaries. In a world without financial frictions, the average borrower would see that they were tens of thousands of dollars richer as a result. Those who secured a sub-3% rate for the full 30 years on an average size mortgage are more than $100,000 better off. The problem? In the real world, the wealth gain doesn't show up anywhere. That's already changed the behavior of homeowners, who cling to homes they would otherwise sell in order to keep the mortgage. It also means it makes sense to keep both debt and savings for financial, not just tax reasons, because the savings earn more than you pay on the mortgage. As a former financial engineer, I find this situation a bit offensive. There's $1 trillion of newly created, well-transferred value. And nobody can do anything about it. Why isn't someone building a product? We talked a while back about assumable mortgages, which are one way to unlock this value, but which are not broadly available. But really, the tempting product is one: you have a $500,000 mortgage that is now worth $287,000. Two: you go to your bank and say, "I'll give you $300,000 for it." Three: the bank is like, "Fine, okay, that works." the bank is better off. It gets $300,000 for an asset worth $287,000. Are you better off? Well, you have paid $300,000 to extinguish a $500,000 debt, so you've saved a lot of money over the life of the loan. Five, though, on an after-tax time value of money basis, it's not clear that you're better off. You could have put the $300,000 in a savings account, earning 4.5%, etc. The main benefit for you is if you want to move. Normally, if you want to move, you have to pay off the mortgage on your old house by paying the full $500,000, and then, unless you can pay cash, you have to get a new mortgage on your new house, and that mortgage will cost 8% or whatever. That's why homeowners cling to homes they would otherwise sell in order to keep the mortgage. Moving would require paying off the old 3% mortgage and taking out a new 8% one. That would be a lot more palatable if you could pay off the old 3% mortgage at a huge discount, reflecting its market value, if, effectively, you could pay it off at an 8% yield. Obviously, this product does not exist much, for several extremely good reasons. One, your bank probably doesn't actually own your mortgage, it probably sliced it into mortgage-backed securities and sold them to investors, so there's no one who owns your whole mortgage and can negotiate with you even if it were in their best interest to do so. Two, even if your bank does own your mortgage, there's a decent chance that it accounts for it on a held-to-maturity basis, meaning that, while the bank knows the mortgage is only worth $287,000, it reflects it on its balance sheet at $500,000. Here is a business insider, Stowe, Rye about how U.S. banks are sitting on an estimated $650 billion in unrealized losses on their bond holdings. Selling it to you for $300,000 would be an economic profit for the bank, but an accounting loss. And the bank cares a lot about accounting. It's really important for the bank to be solvent on an accounting basis, and it will turn down economically profitable trades to stay that way. 3. It would be bad for the banking mortgage system if this were a thing. The way U.S. mortgages mostly work is that you borrow at a fixed rate for 30 years, but you can prepay at any time and most people do because they move. Unless you actually stay in a house for 30 years, you will end up paying off your mortgage early. So in this example, your bank knows that you will probably move eventually, so they'll get their $500,000 back before the 30 years are up, so taking just $300,000 now is a bad trade. I'll pay you $300,000 now for this mortgage, so I can move, you say to the bank. And if you say no, then I will just stay here and pay my mortgage for 30 years, and you'll be worse off. But the bank knows you are bluffing, so they say no, and you move anyway in two years, and they get their $500,000 back. Still, if you could build a product like this, six, it's like a trillion-dollar market, get on that. Sentiment Analysis we talked yesterday about how investors are increasingly employing robots to analyze corporate executives' tone of voice on earnings calls. But meanwhile, corporate executives are analyzing analysts' tone of voice on earnings calls, and it is making them sad. Bloomberg's red-brown reports, good quarter, congratulations, and similar plaudits are drying up on quarterly earnings calls for S&P 500 companies, setting up 2023 for the biggest such annual decline since the great recession. The drop is even more pronounced when compared with the pandemic era, running 35% below the average pace in the previous three years. The slump in congratulatory remarks me, I point to increasingly concerned investors heading into 2024, as the risk of inflation remains sticky, potentially putting more pressure on policymakers. And senior executives do care whether or not Wall Street research firms pat them on the back. 100%, we take notice of it said Gina Mastantuono, chief financial officer of ServiceNow Inc. We are very mindful of feedback, she said. Santa Clara-based software provider ServiceNow has received over 150 plaudits over the last five years, the most among members of the S&P 500. Though the amount of kudos it received this quarter fell to seven from 12 a year ago, there is a chart counting good quarter, great quarter, congrats and congratulations by quarter back through 2019. I wonder if anyone trades on this as a signal, not like for the stock, but for macro trading. Is a downturn in great quarter guys, a leading indicator of recession, of recovery? Anyway, I wrote yesterday that the obvious solution for conference calls is for investors and analysts to use robots to ask the questions and for companies to use robots to answer them. That probably solves this problem. Maybe the analyst robots would not say great quarter guys, but the executive robots would not be offended. Things happen, how Wall Street makes millions selling car loans. Customers can't repay. Can Barclays move beyond scandal and stagnation? Bankers brace for smaller bonuses with no relief seen next year. Texas battles Wall Street in threat to state's muni market. ICBC flies top executives to US in race to contain hack fallout. Hacking gang behind attack on largest global lender says it got ransom payment. Super multi-manager hedge funds are losing some of their superness. Investors return to 81 bonds as UBS's sale inspires confidence. Almost no Russian oil is sold below $1.60 cap, say Western officials. With interest rates above 9%, small businesses slam the brakes. Elon Musk and Jane Fraser, among CEOs, wooing Xi Jin. Ping? Pfizer and Merck accounted for half of the reduction in fourth-quarter earnings estimates between October 1st and early November. John Schmidtline, Google's main litigator, visibly cringed when Murphy said the number. The Department of Buildings has determined that Ray Dalio, the billionaire founder of Bridgewater, the world's biggest hedge fund firm, has constructed an illegal penthouse addition. If you'd like to get money stuff in handy email form, write in your inbox please subscribe at this link, or you can subscribe to Money Stuff and other great Bloomberg newsletters here. Thanks. Also, I get some unearned moral bump for leaving. You were at an evil place, but you left, so you must be less evil than the rest of them. Two J.D. Daniels has an essay on learning Brazilian jiu-jitsu that begins like this, slightly edited for family friendliness. A couple of years ago, I joined one of those clubs where they teach you how to knock the stuffing out of other people. The first lesson is how to get the stuffing knocked out of yourself. The first lesson is all there is. 3. Disclosure, including me. 4. That is PMT 0312 30 asterisk 12 minus 500,000 equal sign $2,108.02 and PV 0812 30 asterisk 12 minus 2,108.02, equal sign 287288.35. dollars 35 Obviously, in the real world, time passed between the 3% rate and the 8% rate, and you'd have paid down a bit of your mortgage. Also, more importantly, this sort of present value math over the life of the loan is not how people actually think about mortgages, because statistically, the average life of a 30-year mortgage is much less than 30 years. Most people move or otherwise prepay their mortgages early, so it is rare for a mortgage to last 30 years, so its actual sensitivity to interest rates is less than this math would suggest. All of this stuff is still directionally right if you assume that a mortgage has an average life of 7 years or whatever, but the magnitudes are lower. 5 th- you've saved $200,000 of principal, $500,000 minus $300,000, plus something. Eng, like $259,000 of interest, versus paying for all 30 years. Six, defeasance, like you put $300,000 into treasury strips today that will come due in time to make all of the remaining mortgage payments for 30 years. This has various problems, the main one being that you can't move. You generally get to pay off the mortgage over 30 years only if you stay in the house. Otherwise, you have to prepay it in full. Follow us. Get the newsletter. Like getting this newsletter, subscribe to Bloomberg.com for unlimited access to trusted data driven journalism and subscriber only insights. Before it's here, it's on the Bloomberg Terminal. Find out more about how the Terminal delivers information and analysis that financial professionals can't find anywhere else. Learn more. Want to sponsor this newsletter? Get in touch here. You received this message because you are subscribed to Bloomberg's Money Stuff newsletter unsubscribe vertical bar bloomberg.com vertical bar contact us vertical bar bloomberg lp 731 lexington new york new york 10022 money stuff goldman keeps getting more boring